welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder, our expectations have become greater, and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate, and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Hello and welcome to the podcast that no one wanted or asked for. I'm thrilled to be bringing you an absolute banger of a first episode that I imagine literally some people will listen to. My first guest, and what a guest to kick off me talking at you for an hour, is founder of everyone's favourite jewellery brand, Misoma. Marisa Horden founded the infamous brand in 2008 and has seen extraordinary global success. Adorned by the fingers and earlobes of our favourite celebrities, including Kate Bosworth, Ellie Goulding, Margot Robbie, and even a few royals, Misoma has moved with the times, launching a more sustainable collection, a new gender-fluid range, and more recently, fine jewellery. Marisa and I caught up about multitasking, cracking America, raising money, making bad decisions, why giving yourself moments to breathe is a crucial way to manage the noise, and how to build a community outside of just your product range. We talked about the power of celebrity and social media, why you have to accept that not everything will work, and that being adventurous is an important skill for a modern entrepreneur. Marisa is really open and honest about her journey, and I hope you feel inspired by all that she's achieved. Yeah, do you think that there's now a standard of, of busyness being akin to success that like we're all supposed to be busy because that's sort of, you know, as you say, give something to a busy person. We're sort of encouraged that that's uh, efficiency. I don't think it's about success. I do think it's about multitasking. And I think like, for example, women do that particularly well because they have families and often work. So therefore, and even if even if they're not working, they might have three kids. They have to multitask between the three kids, the home, um, whatever else it is, or if it's work. But I do think that we are all stretched to our limits and it's about how you do it efficiently. Um, but I think now what we're all working on and, and what lockdown has taught us is how to also focus on not just efficiency and productivity, but also doing it in in a way that allows you room to breathe and doesn't, not living that really busy lifestyle where you just feel constantly 
um, run down, you're running ragged, you're kind of running around chasing your tail, how to do it and give yourself these like moments to breathe and space and whatever that is for you, whether that's exercise, meditation, or just watching TV. I think that's really important. Were you good at that before COVID or have you learned to do that more in the last year or so? I mean, I'm still not good at it. I would say that that's probably one of my biggest challenges. Um, my, I mean, my fiance says to me, he goes, you, you're basically just obsessed by work. And I think the obsession's gotten worse during lockdown because before I was always obsessed with work and I would always work, you know, every evening, weekend, et cetera. But if you had a dinner to go to, you'd stop to go rush to go meet your friends for dinner. Or if you had, I know you were meeting someone, whereas now you're not going to dinner, you're not meeting anyone, you've got no plans. So you just carry on working. And so mm. I think actually, if anything, my, um, my obsession with work, work has gotten worse sadly so I'm not good at taking my own advice I do try and do meditation once a week um and obviously you know you try and exercise a couple times a week or but I'm I'm really bad at it yeah I think it's like the the balance piece is talked about a lot with entrepreneurs and business owners and it's kind of finding a way to make it work for you and I guess your unrelenting commitment to your job is an integral reason as to why the business and you are so successful so it's difficult well, to step back from that and, and take time away from it because it's sort of an, an endless investment yeah. into something that's growing and building and, and there's never a slow moment in the business. Yeah, and I do. I mean, I look at my friends who have um, kids or even my team members who have kids and I do say, well, I don't have kids yet, um, but I suppose this is my baby. And so therefore it becomes, you know, part of your life. Um, but now I just I feel like I have a lot of children <laughs> because there's so many people to look after and that puts a lot of pressure on you as well. Um, but, but at the same time, I enjoy the challenge. I always say it's not about, it, it's not about how many problems you have. It's more about how you're going to solve them. And I think it's very important how you spin that in your own head. And I think that when you start getting into, when you're run down and it starts becoming, Oh God, not another problem. That's when you know you need a break because you need to be on form where by every day you wake up and you go, right, what are we going to solve today? And I think it's all about your mindset. Yeah. And you're right. And you you want to frame it as to, you have to be a solution oriented person because these problems are going to happen rather than trying to have a perfect business where you eliminate exactly. anything from going wrong. So nowadays we hear more stories about people who have really truly pursued their passion and interest and then managed to create a viable business from that. So something you love becoming a career that can actually pay the bills and be, mm. be viable. Where did your love of jewellery begin and how did that lead you to launching Masoma? So I guess I've been collecting gemstone since I was about five I always loved them and again it was just a sort of hobby um and I would sort of have these glass shelves that my dad would put up in my bedroom like filled with with gemstones and, and then people would come in and say where'd you get all energy from and it was like the crystals so it was always a big joke but having said that I was always a creative person so whether you know whatever type of art it was sculpture you know painting making things and my mother's very creative as well um so I think I'd always been creative and then I went down the slightly more um kind of academic route and wasn't really allowed to pursue that well not allowed sorry not allowed but I didn't have room to pursue that shall we say and so I went down the more classic route and and I just realized you know halfway into my sort of two years into my job at more of a corporate um, luxury goods holding company that this was just so dry it was spreadsheets and um, kind of 
head office stuff and I wasn't involved in anything creating a tangible product and that's what I really wanted to do and I think I ended up then going back to kind of gemstones and that was something I was making on the side as a hobby around the kitchen table I don't think it had to be that I think that was you know obviously my first love but now I do look at whether it's um you know accessories I love all accessories basically or um homeware like living accessories as well I mean it could have been cushions it could have been shoes it could have been bags I just think if you're a creative person you need a creative outlet um so you found a a product that you could then create a business around rather than necessarily having the idea specified when you started yeah no there was no idea specified my god I wish I had more of a plan that was a big mistake um but no what I would say is that yeah started making it around the kitchen table with my mum it was very much a hobby on the side and then took it to little you know little shops um you know around London literally selling my wares I was like a traveling kind of um what, what do they call it those people have the rolls and they undo the rolls and they have all these like Rolex watches anyway I was like that but with my kind no, of yeah, necklaces like, like a Fagan type <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that was me um and then you know then started going and you know trying to do desk visits with editors and just grew that very organic way but I would say that I was experimenting with you know the metal the price point you know the the gemstones the design part was never the problem it was always finding where is your niche and I think what happened was when I realized that this could be a business is when I'd realized there was a gap in the market um, for that kind of high quality jewelry that really lasts you want to wear you know good quality um, pieces but that had that really cool fashion forward look because all the really beautiful at, th- at that point, um, you know, in the sort of mid 2000s, um, it was they were just too expensive or it was kind of cheap crap. And I was like, there's real opportunity here for now what is called Demi Fine. It didn't even exist as a category then. So we were one of the first players in that market that took about seven years to get people to accept that to you know understand what vermeil was how it was different from just gold plating to understand the quality to understand that there was this you know mid-tier category um and i remember when netaporte first created a separate kind of category for it and they called it demi fine they, they coined that um you know that phrase but I think it's something that we'd been working towards for seven years so I feel like we did all the hard work getting people to accept it It was a really long journey a real slog and and um and yeah and it paid off in the end but there were years in the wilderness thinking what am I doing this is never going to go anywhere I'm never going to you know make anything of this and it was it was really disheartening but you just have to keep going you said a minute ago that having not having a plan was a was a mistake Mm. can you explain a little bit more to me about that you you sort of referenced seven years yeah in the wilderness (laughs) was it did it sort of just was it that it slowed you down not being a bit being a little bit directionless or what was the main impact of not having a plan well I I think the part of it was that the customer had to learn what you know Goldvermeer was and what this demi fine category was. So maybe there were part of it, the part of it that wouldn't have gone faster anyway. Um, so maybe we were well positioned when then it did start to sort of take off. I think that any plan you have, it, it goes you know awry anyway. Like you never stick to an original plan. But I think what it does do is it helps you with your cost analysis and it helps you with your strategy for how to scale up the business how to grow it, which channels and I don't think I had any of that I think I was just so naive and sort of you know fresh out of my first job I didn't have any business training I hadn't done any kind of I mean I'd studied history at university I had no idea about CPAs and LTVs and all the digital sort of speak that now you know we all talk about but then again didn't exist then either so at the same time sometimes the best learning is on the job I think that I just 
I wish I'd had maybe a partner, and this is what I tell anyone who's starting their own thing. Um, I think if you are going to do it, have a partner who does have the skill set that complements your own so that you can be complete opposites and on opposite ends of the spectrum with absolute mutual respect for each other and each other's talents. But it can be the sounding board and it can be this partner that just is there to have your back and you have their back and you do it together because I think it can be very lonely um, at the beginning. Having said that, the other side of the coin is I do know a few people who've had partners and that's been, you know, it can go completely pear-shaped and um, it can end up being quite, it's like a bitter divorce. So you obviously have to make sure that you know who you're getting into bed with. And even even if you do know who they are, sometimes they can really surprise you. But um, Yeah, totally. There, there needs to be such a, Main, maintenance of that balance mm. of equality mm. between two two roles and and as you say there are tremendous benefits to being a business owner by yourself um the obvious one being you don't have to halve everything and you know when as the business continues to do well but also there is an assumed loneliness not just yeah. you know that you're by yourself but you just can't share those big decisions the buck stops with mm. you every time yeah have you struggled with that pressure? Have you found mm, at times sure. ever that you've been kind of paralyzed by not being able to make decisions or you've made wrong decisions or um, that you you, know, yeah. you mentioned you wish you had someone else to, to bounce off? I don't think I've been paralyzed by indecision. Um, that would be really bad because then you wouldn't be moving forward at all. But I've definitely made wrong decisions. However, the way I also look at it is you only learn from your mistakes. You don't learn from what went well. You don't sit there and go, oh, you know, pat myself on the back, look at how, you know, well we did here. I mean, yes, it's important to celebrate the wins. And, you know, sometimes we don't do that enough and especially not virtually at the moment. It's really hard to. But um but definitely, I always say you learn the most from your mistakes. And as long as you get up again and carry on and you say, right, how do I not do that again? Um, and, and I think even now we all make mistakes, but I think it's about not having that blame culture when also you're in a bigger team. You know, we're, everyone's going to make a mistake at one point. So it's all about closing the gaps and learning from it and how to do it differently. But but yeah, there have been some really big mistakes I've made along the way, really expensive ones. Um but but I think as long as you look back after a year and go, God, we're in a completely different place. I learned so much from that um, and I've turned it around. That's the important thing. You guys launched in 2008. How mm. difficult is it to keep a brand relevant for that much time and, and particularly through the explosion of, of social media, which really was an entirely new marketing vertical that mm. must have if it's sort of 2008 I mean not yeah. not long after that that it became um, yeah. much more mainstream well I'd actually say we weren't particularly relevant before that so I'd actually say that helped us become relevant and so you know I owe obviously a lot of our success to social media in the sense that we were able to go out directly to our customer and market it to them in the way that we wanted our brand to be seen, heard, you know, how we want to show up, but also listen to our customer and get their feedback and understand what works and what doesn't. And I think what happened was I started out in the world of, you know, wholesale, you know, that tra it was more traditional world. You did all these trade shows, you traveled around doing, you know, Vicenza, Paris Fashion Week, you know, Vegas, and it sounds very fun, but my God, it was exhausting. Um, and, you sell in wholesale, you don't make much margin, you're never really going to be able to, well, scale it up that much, and you don't get any feedback from your customer, and you don't know how it's being positioned or sold. And so I kind of moved away from that really early because I just got so exhausted and run down. I was like, there has to be a better way to do things. Like There has to be a way in which we can actually enjoy it more and scale up and control 
you know, it more from, you know, the brand's point of view. And that's when we started going D to C. So, you know, really investing in their own online shop, really looking at social media, you know, working with in those days, they were bloggers, they weren't influencers and it was all organic and it was all, um, you know, very natural and authentic. And um, so we got in really early into, into that and, um, and worked really hard to build up our, you know, customer, our, um, you know, who we were speaking to and how we were showing up. And now it's become the most important thing. I'm not saying social media. I'm saying the mission and what you are talking about and what you represent, what you're representing and, you know, what you want to be, you know, doing, giving back to. So it really does help us focus where the brand is going. And that is very much informed by what the customer wants as well. Yeah, and with that in mind, I guess there's a level of accountability now that's created as a result of having such direct access with customers. Is social media, Instagram specifically, is that an entirely positive tool? Does it keep you accountable and keep you connected? Or do you ever worry that um, things can get out of control or with, you know... Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I literally worry that, you know, it can, you know, you could, you can live by it and, and grow with social media, but you can also die by it, you know, and actually that does worry me um, because when you say accountability, I'm not sure how accountable it is because you don't know if what's being said on there is the truth. Um, it's someone else's truth. It doesn't mean it, it does it really tell both sides. So I do worry about that. Um, and, you know, you can only try and do your best. Um, you can't please everyone all the time. You can really just try and, you know, be as transparent as possible, you know, stand up for yourself if you do get called out and to say what the journey was to get there. And, um, but, but yeah, it is worrying. And no, it's not, it's not always wholly positive. It's been really positive for businesses like ours. And I think that there is so much positive in it. And I think it's about working on all the positives. Um, but, but I'm not saying that on, you know, if you were doing it um, on a personal level, I think it's very different from on a business level. Um, mm. And especially, you know, for young people and young kids versus, um, you know, our, our customers. I think we're trying to spread a positive message outside of selling jewelry. So there's one thing, which is you're selling a product. And then outside of that, it's how we build our community and, you know, how we talk about what we're doing. So be it with Copper Feel, be it with Tree Sisters. Um, we're about to launch our new sustainability uh, mission. So it's, and then we're also trying to build our community and highlight up and coming um, talents, artists, um, you know, what other people are doing, really trying to spotlight and give a platform to, you know, other people. So um, I think as long as you can hold your head up high and say you've tried to, um, you know, make a positive, um, you know, you've only shown up with a positive message, then I think, you know, you need to focus on that. And you mentioned sustainability. I know that now for people starting businesses, it's very important to be cause-led. And that usually and probably and certainly is with good reason. But it's very difficult for young businesses to pick and choose what their cause is, particularly in the early stages. And sometimes you do need to have speciality people in-house. You need to understand a lot more, which comes with experience and, and age of the business. You guys have had a huge focus on sustainability and you mentioned you're about to launch a new initiative. How important has it been for you to ensure that where possible within the business, you are thinking about sustainability and um, 
particularly to a very large audience on social media, sort mm-hmm. of over or almost you know half a million followers. How important is the sustainability message to you? And also how difficult has it been to find the best way to do that? I think it's so much harder than people think. And I think we actually have not been talking enough about what we've been doing because we wanted to get all our kind of ducks in a row, as it were. We wanted to cross all the T's, dot all the I's before we said anything because I think there's so much greenwashing out there. And we would first say nothing than to say something that wasn't completely true. And I think nowadays there are a lot of brands that just say, oh, it's, um, I don't know, ethically sourced or it's um, 100% recycled. And first of all, it's not. Second of all, they haven't checked the chain of custody. So we actually got, um, we got in at the beginning of this year a sustainability manager who had vast amount of experience um, and basically did the chain of custody audit of every single factory and supplier and i mean the suppliers who i don't know supply the findings not just you know um the the cast because i think what we need to understand is when we're trying to do 100 percent recycled gold there is cast gold there's finding and silver sorry silver and gold cast there's findings and then there's also chain and then you're getting it from different suppliers not just one finding supplier different chain suppliers they're coming from different countries and they're going to different countries because we have let's say six factories across um, two different countries, and then some are in, inside import export zones. Some aren't. They have different like legislation rules. And so, if we were dealing with one supplier, chain supplier, one binding supplier, and one factory, I think it'd be easy. And I think it's much harder as you scale. So we've been doing this big project trying to understand how and when we can, you know, move over to 100% recycled silver. And even then, there are a couple of factories that it will take a little bit longer to because of the import duties because they're outside of the. Um, uh, free export import zones and there's just so many different nuances but what we are going to be doing is try and be as transparent as possible communicate those challenges we face so that people understand because a lot of companies we, we took the um, decision to stay with two of those factories even though we can't go 100% recycled silver with them because I think it's more important the sustainability in terms of you're sustaining a family as well. You're sustaining, you know, 300 people working in that factory and their families. And if you just go, oh, no, we're going to move to the other factory because it can give me that 100% recycled silver. Well, actually, you're just cutting off 300 people's livelihoods. And I think people don't understand those kind of nuances enough. So, yeah, I take it very seriously. And I also want to continue to support some of the factories that, you know, I've been working with for 12 years. Um, But, no, we've been making sure that every factory is – a member of the Responsible Jewelry Council audited by them. We ourselves have become members of the Responsible Jewelry Council being audited by them because I think you need to kind of live by example, if you know what I mean. You can't expect someone else to do something, not do it yourself. We've been looking at the whole chain of custody of every single um, you know, element. Gemstones is harder, so that's going to be a longer um, term project. But we're doing what we can, when we can, and we're setting in place a, a roadmap um, because we're not saying we're perfect. We're not saying we're a sustainable brand. What we're saying is we want to be as responsible as possible, and we're looking at all those different areas. So, for example, we're doing we're going to be doing carbon offsetting for all deliveries. Um, and returns and then the next stage will be to look at all imports but you know you can't do it all at the same time so we've got a roadmap so we do it stage by stage um but yeah and then on the other side you know we've also been supporting for example tree sisters for you know i'm trying to think three years now and we we plant we've planted quarter of a million trees now to date um and obviously we've got a goal to get to a million so there's lots of things we're involved in we're not perfect um gold plating and um you know jewelry is not um, the most sustainable um, process. So what it is is about offsetting it and doing everything with the most 
uh, responsible sourcing as possible. So that the recycled gold, silver, the most, um, you know, the best audited factories. Um, but it's complicated. Yeah. If someone listening to this podcast was starting a business, particularly uh, a jewellery business, do you think it's an important thing to focus on from the beginning? You just mentioned yes. that it's much harder to implement retrospectively. Yeah. Should it be woven in from day one rather than done retrospectively? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I say we're not implementing it retrospectively in the sense that they've always been part of the, they've always been um, part of the responsible jewellery council. We've always checked on uh, all of our factories and made sure that you know they are of the highest standard. I think it's more implementing retrospectively recycled gold or silver. Just just to clarify, because I think there's a difference between some of the processes that could be more sustainable as opposed to um, working conditions, which are an absolute must um, to check and make sure that everyone is you know those factories are audited and up to international standards. Um, so I think absolutely, you're, it's easier if you're starting with your goals in place and you know what you want to focus on. Um, and some people, it might be sustainability. Other people, it might be responsible um, employment. Um, it might be giving back in other ways. But yeah, I think it's definitely easier to start from scratch because you might choose different locations and different factories dependent on your, you know, what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's good advice. Um, there's an obsession now with brands when they launch to partner with celebrities and influencers, which still, I think, for a lot of growing companies feels like a bit of a wild west. Misoma is a fashion favorite. You've been in pretty much every magazine available. You've dressed A-list celebrities and royals and a whole myriad of uh, successful women and entrepreneurs, influencers, etc. How important is the impact of that sort of visibility for a brand like yours? I mean, I think it depends. I mean, we haven't dressed any of them. They've chosen to wear it. I think that's a big difference with, you know, with us is we are the brand that sort of, well, one of the brands that they go to for their everyday jewelry. So I think when they're dressed, they're dressed by bigger brands that are paying for them to wear their jewelry on the you know red carpet. And then the next day, they'll be sort of seen in us, I don't know, going to the airport or going to the market or whatever it is. So um, I think it depends because for a long time we were, we were on, you know, some of these um, amazing women, but no one would know it was us. So I think it all comes together with, as you know, Emily, the amazing team around you that then, you know, get it spoken about and for a long time I suppose we were that kind of best kept secret um what I find hard is how to traverse the, the kind of road from being the best kept secret to then being seen as oh you know too too uh too seen or you know people um you know sort of find it, it too everywhere so that's always yeah. been a hard a hard uh, road I mean yeah we do see I mean it's it's weird I don't really focus on what we get from seeing these um, different, you know, women or men wearing our jewelry. What I focus on is I love seeing different ways in which they wear it, our customer as well. I love seeing mother and daughter, for example, because I love seeing it go against um, generations. Because I started this with my mum, and my mum is actually much cooler than me, and she wears like all these, um, all this cool stuff that, you know, I don't think I would have the guts to. And I love then seeing someone like, I don't know, um, Cindy Crawford and Kaya Gerber wearing it in their own ways. Um, and so I think I, I like, 
I don't know. I like seeing it when I walk down the street and I just see, I don't know, someone, you know, walking down the street wearing it. That for me fills me with much more joy, just knowing that it's out there and people are wearing it, you know, every day as I kind of wanted it to be, um, you know, simple. Do you think that will ever get old or do you think every time you clock someone in an airport or, you know, wherever else in a restaurant wearing it or, you know, being given it on a birthday, will that always sort of give you a warm feeling? I mean, it's just always the English. And that's the thing. I think, you know, if I'm in LA and I sort of see someone, they're English. If I'm in New York and I see someone, they're English. And, if, you know, on a plane, they're English. And I think it would be really exciting when I sort of start seeing more people, you know, um, kind of internationally wearing it. Um, because I do at the moment think it's very much like, you know, the English person wearing wearing this or taking it abroad as opposed to, um, I don't know, seeing, you know, uh, I don't know, a Spanish person or a, I'm trying to think, you know, someone. Although, I, I mean, I look at our, our, our uh, flow of goods and I mean, 55% are going internationally. I was in the warehouse once helping like pack up and there was one going to outer Mongolia. I was like, Jesus, how do they know about us? <laughs> um, so, so maybe I just don't see them. But yeah. Well, but but to that point, you've grown the business incredibly successfully. It's now a global multi-million pound brand. I want to ask you about culture because, you know, I've been fortunate enough to know you for a long time and some of your team and, and work together. And there is a very intimate family oriented mm. culture at the business, which undoubtedly is derived from you and the way that you want to work. How difficult has it been? You mentioned you're now over 80 people. How difficult is it to retain that initial kind of building the plane as it flies, family, intimate, yeah. everyone's there late nights, once you become much bigger? Yeah. Well, first of all, we've never really been a late night working kind of brand. And I think a lot of people have come to Miss Smith, you know, having had bad experiences elsewhere and they've been working really late nights, et cetera, and they can't believe that we're not like that. I think obviously there's one or two occasions pre launch, et cetera, but it's still not really late night. And if it is, then we're ordering in drinks and pizzas and whatever, and we make it fun. I do say to everyone, you've got to enjoy your working environment. And and I, I had a past experience where I didn't, and it really made me think I never want that to be the case again. First of all, family is everything to me. So when someone has something in the family, that's the most important thing. Second of all, um, I also think that you have to enjoy your working environment. If you don't, if you don't enjoy the team you work with, I mean, that's so much a massive part of your life, even virtually on Zoom tools, calls, et cetera, that, you know, it's almost not worth it. So I think it is the most important thing to us. It's really hard to maintain. And it's like, on the one hand, it's the hardest thing in the world. And on the other hand, it's the easiest thing in the world. And I, I don't know, each week I change my mind. So We've tried to do a lot more, obviously, during this, you know, working from home period. So we have um, a yoga class every week. We have a, they call it a sweat class. And I really don't know why, but anyway, it's a hit class. Um, then we have, we had sort of resilience training at one point for like, you know, three weeks for people. We had, oh, we had Elizabeth Day come in and speak to the team last week, which I love because I'm obviously a big fan of how to fail. Um and that whole mantra. And that was really inspirational. And that was for the team. And again, it wasn't for our customer. It was for our team. It's like, I always believe in start from within and you can't kind of go and preach something outside if you're not actually practicing it within. Um, and then what else do we do? We send them little gift packages and little treats and surprises. And, you know, if someone's, I don't know, we really try and support. And there've been a few instances recently, I think where, you know, we've, we've done that really well. And, 
it's hard though there are definitely people that have started since lockdown and we haven't met necessarily in person and we're so looking forward to getting back to the office because i do think you need a bit of that interaction and it will go back to a hybrid model it's not going to go back to five days a week but i think you still need those few days where you're actually just in it together and you're really you just rip off each other and the energy and i don't think you get that on a zoom call you just don't get that energy and i think we're all about vibe and energy so yeah we're redoing the office at the moment to get everyone like excited about coming back in um but no i mean it's you've got to constantly work at it you've got to constantly work at what are you doing to make sure you know be it oh have an extra hour lie in because it's blue monday or you know let's finish early on friday because we all deserve it, it, it it's you know you've got to constantly think and actually we do have um an amazing um, HR manager who's constantly doing just a wonderful initiatives for the team and then we also have different like team members so we have a social squad you know we have the diversity inclusion squad we have there's another squad uh, the sustainability squad uh, yeah so we try and make sure that everyone has a voice and what are some of the challenges that come with scaling a business like yours and how have you found ways to overcome them Oh God, what aren't the challenges? I mean, honestly, <laughs> um, I think one of the the biggest thing is not um, not knowing what is possible, and so you need to bring in expertise that can help you understand and can tell you from their experience what is possible. And I think definitely in areas that you're not as confident on. So if it was on design i have no problem i mean you know it's more on the operations how do we make sure we can ship that number of units how do we handle these brexit you know kind of like fallout you know negotiations and i think in particular it's on the tech side how do you ensure that you're constantly innovating your tech roadmap is you know moving fast enough you're able to um implement enough changes to allow you to scale and grow um and there's things you don't even know about like i'm trying to get i don't know a um what is it uh data asset management system in place and they're like oh but to have the dam you need the pim i'm like what the hell is the pim product information management system there's just all these different systems that you need to scale and you need a bloody degree but a you need to know what you're talking about in order to try and hold your own in the meetings not a deep not an in-depth expert knowledge but you need to know that top line knowledge um but you need to surround yourself by people you trust and who have more knowledge than you, have more expertise than you. So I would say it's the tech side has been probably one of my biggest challenges and maybe even the digital marketing side because, you know, talking about, I don't know, the, uh, the, the, all the new channels you don't know anything about or the different, you know, lifetime value and uh, cost per acquisition across different channels and top of the funnel versus bottom of the funnel, it just gets very complicated. And so I think it's about delegating, but also to people that, you know, bringing in the, the, best that you can to you know advise you um and to help you know you navigate those sort of uncharted waters that you also just don't fully understand <laughs> yeah i mean i i want to talk to you about tech because uh, you know you guys oh come on <laughs> you guys are um, you know a, a jewelry company but you have used tech in many different ways i mean a long time ago you uh partnered with apple to try and find new and innovative ways to allow customers to create products that was obviously a foray into something that was more consumer facing but you mentioned a couple of systems there that i've obviously immediately forgotten because they sound complicated but for i guess it'd be helpful to understand how the business 
uses tech to help yeah. to dominate the category? Well, I definitely don't think we're dominating on the tech side yet, but I think we've got a roadmap. And the only issue for me is we can never move fast enough with the roadmap. So I, for me, my biggest problem is how to keep that moving fast enough. And most of our projects, even be them marketing you know, projects and internationalization projects, rely on the rollout of that international of that sort of tech roadmap and we can't do any of that without the tech integrations and it's got to the point now where the integration hub is is so complicated yeah you need a kind of a degree so then you know suddenly you have now we have a a kind of hybrid model for the tech team so we have our own house tech team we have an outside agency for sort of special projects or if we don't have enough resources and then we also have a nearshore team um so nearshore is in europe as opposed to like offshore is when it's like more um different time zones so so yeah we kind of try and ramp it up and scale it up as and when but i mean one of my biggest coups probably is last week we got our first two female coders i was so excited about that i mean we have not been able to find there just aren't enough women in tech it's something i really just want to i think the next generation will there will be a lot more women in tech because i think they're just learning it from a much younger age and it's more at the forefront of education but um but it was just so exciting we've never even had you know any females apply um so so that was really exciting but um yeah we just it's it's how fast how long is a piece of string and how fast can you move and then it's all sort of you know chicken and egg um because you can't launch one thing without the other thing but then you need to do there's so much also research that you just have you have business analysts and project managers just to research the different projects and to make sure that oh i mean everything is um you know there's there's obviously the gdpr side cookie side etc but then there's also all the kind of different implementation what's involved there's you know we were shopify plus for example but actually the biggest problem is the kind of how many different APIs you've got going in Shopify Plus, how many different apps, they're your weak points, you know, if ever you need to kind of scale or you have huge, you know, um, surges in, in traffic. So, you know, you very much have to be on it in terms of um, protecting, you know, your website, which is your shop, your only, you know, shop from any down moments. Um, so, yeah, tech is, we do. We are looking at some more innovative um, areas. You know, we are looking at AR and and a few really exciting projects. But we kind of had to separate it out and say, right, we need sort of really to focus on innovation because we're constantly trying to get through this roadmap, and it's all just BAU, and we're not able to get ahead of ourselves. So that's been one of the biggest um, struggles, I would say, when you realize that your designs are only as good as your tech roadmap because you need to be able to get them out. Um, yeah. And for new businesses, I imagine there's got to be sequencing with this stuff, right? Like on day one, it's not back businesses are not capable of having a completely sustainable um, product and packaging and having all the tech and having everything in place. Mm, mm. Do, did you ever feel like, you know, some of those things were overdue? And then you're like, right, we've now got to look at the tech yeah, and you're sort of I, doing it as it's yeah, happening. We, Exactly. We we basically probably amassed a bit of tech debt, which is what they call it. I love that word, tech debt. Anyway, where you need to clean up some of your like, whether it's coding or outdated tech or upgrade to allow you to scale. I don't you need to worry about it right at the beginning because if you go on a platform, you know, like Shopify Plus, etc., you know, you've got some really good out of the box templates and just scale up with that. And then there's a lot more you can add to it. But when you get to a certain uh, size and you're trying to 
have localized stores and trying to, um, you know, have localized payments. There's a lot that is needed to done to get you to that. Um, there's superficial level you can do that, you know, you can have different currencies, but it still goes out in your base currency. So it's not actually, you're not benefiting from those um, exchange rates, but also then you can't, I don't know, if you don't have a Eurosite, you can't put Klarna in. There's a lot of different nuances. Um but I think you can build it up slowly. You don't need to do everything at once. I think you do get to a point where you, you're just a tipping point, and we're at that really, you know, that tipping point. So, for example, for next year, we had a three-year lease on our warehouse, and it's like 6,000 square feet, and now we're at that tipping point. And so now we're looking at a 20,000 square foot um, warehouse, you know, and it's just, it's, it's a scary, you know, place to be, um, whilst also looking at, let's say three PLs in the U S and Europe and, you know, Asia. So, um, but each one of those needs another tech integration. (laughs) So everything comes back to tech. (laughs) And presumably there's a momentum that you get when the business is the size it is now with you, where, you know, you've kind of got to, got to make the decisions quite quickly about those things you can't stay in a smaller warehouse You've, is there an element of that momentum just sort of pushing you forwards all the time because it's now yeah. bigger than you constantly I mean constantly but at the same time you can't rush decisions because you need to find out what order you're going to do it in so we couldn't make like for example we couldn't make uh, 3PL is a really good example so that's a third-party logistic provider so it's when you have a sort of warehouse in different countries to um you know send out your stock and First of all, we had to do an analysis, let's say for Brexit. Is it more cost-effective to have a European one versus have it in the UK? We did that cost analysis. Actually, it was still more cost-effective for one more year to have it internally. Then uh, you also can't you can't do all three in one year. So you decide what is the order of priority. Um, you know, what's, what's the cost saving? How much time resources is it going to take? How much can the uh, tech team, you know, do? So there's so many interdependent sort of layers um and that's basically my job my job becomes um <laughs> to understand the roadmap approve the budgets and i do very little design <laughs> i'm joking well actually i'm no, not I, mean, I do do very little design but and but that's when an now i'm going to be looking for a ceo because i've decided i really want to focus on you know the design and new product development and you know i am you know 95 percent on operations and tech which well right you kind of do what the business needs and actually yeah you end up doing you know r- running the business in mm. that sense is not yeah what you want but it comes full, it comes full circle emily to your question at the beginning about starting something that's your passion then you become it becomes a paying job well does it end up being something that is no longer your passion not in the sense that i'm still passionate about designing and creating a tangible product and beautiful jewelry but my job my day job is ops and overseeing tech so mm. now I'm focusing on how do I get back to the bit that I know that I'm good at and that is my passion? Well, no, I think it's a really, really important point because the business needs you to show up in a different way when it gets to mm-hmm. a certain point. And the luxury of being able to have a C-suite team or specifically mm. in this instance, a CEO comes with a cost mm. and comes with, uh, you've got to give away some of those equity, yeah, yeah. decisions, right? And and potentially equity and other, and other things. So I think it's um it's a thing that people don't talk about that much but as yeah. you say you you start doing a job and you get dragged into areas mm. that you would have never naturally um seeked out uh, and other people you who have 
yeah, and other people have more experience of that than you would do a better job of that than you. And we're at that stage now where, well, I think potentially they would. Um, and then you have to have that delicate balance between the founder and the CEO because, as you say, they could be taking a lot of executive decisions, but you want to keep creative control. But, you know, you do hear stories of CEOs coming in and taking a brand completely down the wrong direction. And, you know, it can be a disaster. So, again, you're on to that next thing of you're getting into bed with someone, you better make sure it's the right person. And is mitigating against those horror stories, just doing due diligence, getting to know someone, you know, trusting instinct and feeling that you've got to feel that you know what's best for your business? Or is there a bit of a, I've got to roll the dice? No, I mean, yeah, you definitely want to roll the dice for something like that. But the other thing is you've got to have an understanding of how long it will take you. Because, for example, it'll take nine to 12 months. And that's what people don't understand. So it'll take three months for an executive search. Then you start interviewing. That might take another three months. Then if you do offer and you're lucky enough to find someone, then they will have six months notice probably. Then once they come in, you need them to have four to six months to embed. So it's a really long journey. And you need to – that's where I – I mean, I love forward planning and, um, you know, we're, it's finding the time to forward plan and start getting things in motion early enough. Um, everything that you do is about, it doesn't matter if it's tech roadmap or a strategic roadmap, but it's all about the planning. Even now with design, um, you know, everything is being designed for a year, you know, out. So, so your, yeah, your life just becomes one big multitasking roadmap (laughs) people talk about the difference and the luxury between working in your business and on your business do you do both or are you in it right now I think I'm too in it and I think yeah if I could give anyone advice it would be I think I need more mentors um so be that like board members who can be a mentor be it outside mentors that you can go to as you know for some consultancy you know people to help you make those really difficult decisions or give you some, you know, of their expertise, um, knowledge. I think I need to be less in the day to day. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hard one, but trying to get out of it every week that you, you know, you try and book some time out to focus on either design or planning just then gets somehow absorbed, um, into something or other. Yeah. But at the same time, I wouldn't have it any other way because I, thrive off this kind of um fast-paced environment and it's not for everyone do you think that that level of resilience and perseverance is integral to being able and capable of growing and scaling a business absolutely without a doubt I mean I literally say to anyone they're like what do you need if you're going to start your own business I'm like perseverance and you need to be, it's, you know, you need to take the knocks and get back up again. I mean, God, for like, I would say seven years. I mean, I was just knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. And even when you do have one step forward, then it's two steps back or, or it might be two steps forward, one step back. You need to just keep persevering because you're looking for that, what I call the sweet spot. You're looking for that point at which you reach this moment where you found your own sweet spot. And it's where the, all the different elements come together. So it's where product quality pricing I mean okay you might not have a product you might be a service but and then marketing um you know your customer how you you know talk to them and reach them etc um then there might be I mean there's consumer facing there's you know paid advertising it's when everything comes together and you realize you've just there's been a step change and then there's Mm -hmm. a step change every you know it depends. Some people it's every few months, some people it's every year or two years, but you need to be ready for those step changes. 
Yeah, it can be like snakes and ladders, can't it? It's sort of yeah. you get you get to a certain point. You don't want to get just... to that thing where they send you back to jail. <laughs> what's that? What's that one in like Monopoly where you land? Yeah, and... where you don't pick up any cash and you just go yeah. and sit in jail. Well, that's the worst yeah. place to be. <laughs> um, speaking of cash, you raised money for the business. You did a you did a, a fundraise. Yeah. How did you decide at what time you needed to do that? And can you tell me a little bit more about the process? So. I think part of it was because I um, realized that my previous partners that I was with, whilst, you know, very supportive, et cetera, weren't the right ones to scale with. Um, and so I realized if we wanted to scale, we needed partners with a different vision, uh, slightly bigger vision and more of an internationalization um, or an understanding of how to um, internationalize. And so for me, it, it kind of just, it, it was natural. You realize when you're kind of not going to be able to take it any further with, with certain, you know, partners. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I'm trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> so yes, it was, it was no, just one of those things where you know it's the don't, right time. Don't be Switzerland. Tell me, uh, tell me the no, honest no. truth. You, you know when it's, the, when it's the right time. And, but the yeah. problem is even when you know it's the right time, it takes a long time. Just like with, when I, um, described to you the, the process of finding a CEO, it's the same thing with raising money. And the other thing with it is it takes so much time away from growing the business that that can suffer because there's so much you need to do in the due diligence phase that no matter how you know organized you are, I didn't even have a, I didn't even have a CFO at that point. I had no one. It was just me and a couple of managers um, and, and, and then a team of execs. So there were a few managers. Um, and I'm just trying to think they're just so there was no CFO to support um if you did I, it again now would you have hired specialist people to, oh to run yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and now anyway I have a CFO commercial finance director I mean I did have a financial controller so they help and she's still there and she's amazing um but but yeah I think I went in again blind um not really realizing how much it takes a lot of time, um, resource, energy, and then that means you're spending that, you're not spending that on the business. So you also mm. need to be really prepared for that. Everyone says that, even it doesn't matter how big you are. And so it's quite hard to raise whilst you're trying to grow. Um, so, so yeah, I'm very aware of that now for the next, uh, for the next race. Yeah, it feels like a lot is happening. And look, not everything's going to work. You have to be prepared for that as well. But you have to keep trying new things. And I love innovating. And I love, I don't, I don't like to stand still. And I don't think any brand should. I don't think even the product should. I think it's always about, you know, being adventurous and trying new things. Well, I mean, on that bombshell, I thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. I know you're running a global business and I'm very grateful for you to take the time out to chat to me. I'm, I have no doubt that many, if not all of the things you've said today will be immensely helpful and useful for people at all different stages of their um, their business journey. Whether it's Missima or Miss Oma, it's one by <laughs> everyone, everyone I know. And every time I open a magazine, I see it. Um, and I'm excited Aww. to keep, keep seeing the business grow. Thank you so much. Well, it's lovely to chat with you again. <laughs>